Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by our proximity to Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by our proximity to Jesus. And from the time of their respective births, Jesus and John the Baptist's lives were intertwined. Both their conceptions were miraculous, and both were announced by the angel Gabriel. Both their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, stayed together while they were pregnant. In fact, we know that when Mary and Elizabeth met each other as these pregnant moms, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb when they came together. In fact, as John went through the course of his life, he knew what his purpose was. And we see it stated very clearly in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. John said these words, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You can see as John expected his life to unfold, he expected Jesus to come after him, and he expected Jesus to bring judgment, and he expected Jesus to finally bring peace to this world that's so marred and filled with sin. In fact, this gave him the confidence to be fearless. Amazingly, he called the religious leaders, some of whom were the most respected people of their day, he called them a brood of vipers. Now that's bad enough, isn't it, to be called a brood of vipers? None of us would like to be called a brood of vipers. We know that they're, they're, uh, they're, they're scary creatures and they bite. But there was more to it than that. That statement took us all the way back to the garden. You see, Satan is the great serpent. And what John the Baptist was calling the religious leaders of his day was uh, sons of the devil. And so you can imagine how John was not afraid to speak, in that sense, truth to power. In fact, he did it even with Herod. Herod was a, Herod Antipas was a, was a ruler during that time, and um, he engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality. And John the Baptist was not afraid to speak against it. In fact, Herod took his brother's wife as his own wife, and John railed against that showing that that was against God's law, that was against God's word. And as a result of it, Herod couldn't have a famous preacher like John saying those things about him in public, and so he locked him up in prison. In fact, um, he was locked up in a place called Machairus, and here's a picture of it. This is this fortress. If you can kind of imagine Israel, if you know where it is on the map, to the west you have the Mediterranean Sea, on the east you have the, you have the Sea of Galilee, and then running from the Sea of Galilee you have the Jordan River, and that runs into the Dead Sea. And that area, particularly on the other side of the, of the Jordan River, is very desolate. In Machairus, this place that John was kept was a fortress. We know he was kept there because Josephus was a famous historian from that same era who, who tells the story of John's death, like the story we read in the Bible, and he points out that fact of history that he was put in this place. As you can see, 
that fortress. It was, it was placed there in the east as a, as a way to protect Israel from the eastern enemies. From that place, you could see, you could see uh, the, the top of Jerusalem and other important places like Masada that were, that were there, national, uh, there of national importance. And so uh, he, was, he was kept there in this fortress. And, and we even have this um, other location that we noticed a moment ago. In fact, um, archaeologists are fairly confident that where you see that rock formation, that is where Herod's throne was. And many scholars believe that that is the very location that John the Baptist was executed. In fact, uh, they believe that they know exactly where the dance floor was, where where uh, Herod's, um, uh, I, don't know, I don't even know what you'd call Salome. She's the daughter of his brother and, and, his, and his, his wife. And, and now he's taken his brother's wife as his own. And Salome's, Salome's there living there too. It's the, it's the place where Salome danced. We know where that happened. And it was in this spot probably that, uh, that John the Baptist's head was delivered to Herod. And so we are looking at the story of a real man who had real struggles and life wasn't working out the way that he wanted it to work out. Maybe a lot of you have found yourself in a place like that where as you go through the course of your life you feel disappointment. You think about the the things that you had hoped would happen in your life and they haven't worked out and so often we can become frustrated and angry, and we can blame God for that. In fact, we notice as John the Baptist was in this situation, as he was sitting in this prison, maybe he was there a year, maybe he was there up to two years. We're not exactly sure how long he was there, but we know that he was broken because he expected Jesus to come and bring a new era of peace and hope and break the bonds of of slavery and wickedness that had so hung over God's people for so long, but things continued. He spoke the truth, he fulfilled his duty, and despite all of these things, he suffered. He suffered greatly in this prison. And so, um, as we think about John as a real man suffering in real ways, we can look at the way he dealt with his real doubts. Maybe... Maybe you've had a time in your life where you have, you have struggled and you have doubts in your faith and doubts in your walk with God. Maybe some of you are struggling with that this morning. Well, I think that we have a, we have a blueprint in many ways of how we handle those doubts, handle those situations that we face in our life. And the first thing we notice, the first thing we notice is that, that we talk to Jesus. When you find yourself in a place in your life where you are facing doubt, and again, the Lord, the Lord tests us in our Christian life in this way, I believe. We see that often in Abraham's life. Many times, Abraham was tested, and God used that testing in his life to produce in him uh, a refined man, a changed man, a faithful man. And we see this over and over again through the, through, the, through the different people that we view in Scripture. And we see this in John's life. And the first thing we notice he did was talk to Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if there was anyone who should have been confident about who Jesus was, it should have been John the Baptist. 
Surely he heard the stories about Jesus from his mother, you would assume. He is the one who baptized Jesus. It was when John baptized Jesus that, uh, that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and, and, uh, and the, the voice of God spoke. If there was anyone who should have known, it was, it was John. But he was discouraged. And he was weighed down. And he went through a, a, a time of difficulty and doubt. I think about others who have gone through periods of time like that. And, um, but the beautiful thing is, is that he went and he sent messengers to Jesus. There's a story about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous Christian writers who has ever lived. And he was raised in, in a family in the Church of Ireland. And by the time he was about 15 years old, though, he had doubts about his faith, and finally he became an atheist. What's interesting is, is that there's an old saying, there are, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Well, he went, fought during World War I, and he was an atheist in a foxhole. He maintained that atheism. He went back to school. He eventually becomes a professor at Oxford. And he's, a, he's still an atheist. And then he meets a friend. And that friend is J.R.R. Tolkien. And many of you may have heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote The Hobbit. He wrote The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien was a believer. And so he and Tolkien struck up a friendship and they began to talk. And finally, he be became convinced of the truths of the scripture, the story of Jesus. And so this is what he writes about his conversion. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, Oxford. Night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I wrote that in his book, Surprised by Joy. You know, it's an amazing thing that when we feel dejected, when we feel broken, when we feel like we're carrying the hurts of our life and our past with us and we're carrying our doubts it's amazing how when we go back to Jesus, the Lord can steal us in those times. He can lift us up in those moments. And we notice here that this is exactly what John was going through at this time. He was wondering whether or not Jesus was really the Christ. Here's John. He's supposed to be the forerunner of the Messiah who would make the way for the Lord. And this is, this is what the, one of the prophecies in in Malachi says about that, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is what he was. He was, he was the, the final Elijah, if you will who is to come before the coming of the Lord. And this is using a device that's often found in Scripture called typology. And in the Bible, you have all kinds of types which find their later fulfillment in something else. And so Elijah, in a sense, was a type 
who would find his fulfillment in something greater, and that was John the Baptist. And so here John the Baptist was. He was carrying out his mission. He was carrying out his work. And he was waiting for these things that God had promised to come, but they hadn't come. People were still the same. The rulers who were wicked were still on their thrones. He wanted, he wanted Satan under Jesus' foot. And he wanted Jesus to reign unchallenged. He's wondering, what about the gladness? Remember we read about that in, in, uh, earlier in Isaiah 35? What about the gladness that's supposed to accompany the coming of the Messiah? What about the streams in the desert? What about the highway of holiness that only the redeemed can walk on? What about all these things? He's expecting them. And they're not coming. And so he's disappointed. He's disillusioned. But you know what's amazing? He goes to Jesus. And that's exactly what we need to do when we are struggling in our faith. We need to go to Jesus. We need to get another perspective, a better perspective. Do you know that we can look at the same situation with, with one perspective and feel utterly defeated, and we can look at the same thing with a new perspective and, and feel empowered? Let me give you an example of this. So, I used to be terrified of public speaking. Absolutely terrified. Anybody else can share that conviction? It's one of the biggest fears, right? Public speaking. I think the three R, I've said this before, the three R, of falling from a high place, public speaking, and death. So the scariest thing that can happen to us is when we're somewhere publicly speaking, we fall and we fall to our death. That's like the scariest <laughs> possible thing that can happen to us. Well, I used to be terrified of public speaking. And I remember going to a class, and this was just a speech 101, and the professor was there, and he said, he said, you know this feeling that you get when you get these butterflies in your stomach and it's time to speak and you're afraid and you want to run away and you melt down in that situation? He said, well, that is, that is adrenaline. And adrenaline gives you two responses. One is fight, one is flight. And for those who want to run away, what you're experiencing is that flight. He said, but I want you to reinterpret what you're feeling. I want you to interpret it in a different way, I want you to gain another perspective. I want you to think of it as God's way of empowering you to speak. I want you to look at it as a way that will energize you when you're able to share. And all of a sudden, I looked at the same situation, and my perspective changed, and everything changed. And I was no longer afraid of public speaking, and the reason was a simple change in perspective. Sometimes when we find our places, our, ourselves in those places of doubt, we run everywhere but to Jesus. But notice, that's the first thing John does, is he runs to Christ, and it's in that situation, and obviously he sends his messengers, his disciples to Jesus. He can't get out of jail and go talk to Jesus. But the first place he runs is to Jesus. That's the first place we need to run when we're struggling with doubt. For most Christians, it is not if we ever face doubt, but it's when we face doubt. This is a natural part of the Christian life, and God uses it, God uses our doubt in good ways to build our faith and to strengthen us. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to, we need to run to Jesus. Second thing is we need to remember that God's timing is better than our timing. God's timing is better than our timing. We read in verses 4 and 5, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached 
to them. As we can see, John is, is going through a time of fatigue. John believes that, the, that, the, that the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, that the whole world would be straightened out. I think he's going through a kind of fatigue sort of similar to what we are going through, may, may, many of us. Anybody share with me COVID fatigue? Anybody else facing COVID fatigue? We think, I'm the only one, okay, I guess it's going to be just true confession. I saw a couple of hands. But it's just true confessions, right? It's just, it just seems like this thing is going on and on and on and it never ends. And we don't really know when it's going to end. And so just when we think it's over, just when we think it's out of the woods, all of a sudden we hear, ah, maybe shutdowns again. Oh, mass might come back again. All these things. And we wonder, when will we ever get out of this cycle? It goes on and on and on. When will life get back to normal? Well, John was faced with this same kind of fatigue. He was expecting, at the moment of the dawn of Jesus, he was expecting everything to get to the way that it was supposed to be. And then he just sees wickedness continue on and on and on. And he doesn't see anything change. And so Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples to go back and tell, tell them what's going on. And by the way, John knows what's going on. It tells us in verse 2 that he knows what's going on. But Jesus wants, wants his disciples to go back and just say once again what's happening. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. Remember Isaiah 35. The crippled walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. The gospel is being preached to those who need it most. In some ways, I think that John thought of himself as sort of like the Marines. He was going to go in there and clear the territory, take the beach, and he was waiting for the rest of the army to mop everything up. Jesus. Jesus is a one-man army. But Jesus wasn't doing it, and he felt disappointed in the middle of it. But what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, 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 look, John, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm not going to do it in your time. You can see these promises are coming true. Just trust me. Just trust me. And it's the same thing in our own lives. Sometimes we go through disappointment and we feel brokenness and we feel hurt and we feel as if we can't go on. And God is saying to each of us, trust me. I know the timing. I'm going to do it. You just look to me. I'm faithful. I'll carry you through. Third thing is we need to make up our mind. We need to make up our mind. First is we need to talk to Jesus. Second, we need to remember that God's timing is not our timing. Third, we need to make up our mind. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. The word behind the word offended is. Um, uh, and this is, this is something that, that we need to do ourselves. We need to, we need to make up our mind. Who is it that we serve? Who is it that we're going to follow? One of the ways that we used to, we used to illustrate this with, with kids in youth group is we would take two pieces of tape and we'd put it on the floor. We'd put it at an angle. And, um, and we would ask the kids, we would say, okay, we want you to try to walk on both sides of the tape. Just stay on both sides of the tape. And so it would start at an angle and it was, a, it was easy at first, right? The kids would take a step and then at each step they would take, they would have to make their feet wider. Well, the kids who are a little taller than the shorter kids could go a little bit farther, right? But eventually, everybody had to make up their mind. Which way am I going to go? And this is exactly what, 
what Jesus was calling John to do. John, you need to make up your mind. Who is it you trust? Who is it that you follow? John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We live in a world where it's increasingly forcing us to make decisions. You see, John was in prison. He was a real man with real aspirations, and he was in prison. And why was he in prison? Because because he told the truth within a culture that was hostile to that. He told the truth within a culture that that he said that this this immorality that, that, uh, that the elites think is okay, God doesn't think it's okay. He spoke the truth in that situation. The culture says to us, embrace that relationship. Who cares what God says? The culture says, it's okay, it's okay to watch that film. There's nothing wrong with that. The culture says, just do what you want. Don't worry about the consequences. And God's word says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The reality is, is that the Lord doesn't promise health and wealth like the world likes to do. But what God promises is himself. And what we have in him, what we have in Christ is far better than anything that the world has to offer. The reason I bring all of this up is because we live in a culture that is increasingly, increasingly, increasingly at odds with what we believe as Christians. One of the most appalling things that I've seen in some time has occurred in Finland where there is a, there is a woman who is a, who is a medical doctor who I believe has five children, six grandchildren, a pillar of the community. She's also a member of parliament in Finland. Now think about this. You talk about somebody who's at the, at the very top of her culture. Well, she's being threatened with six years in prison. Six years in prison. What is her offense? Her offense is basically three things. And, uh, and I'm going to butcher her name, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to tell you her name anyway. It's, it's Paivi Rossinen. Paivi Rossinen. She's being charged with three things. In 2018, she had an interview on a television program. Subsequent to that, sometime, she must have written a pamphlet. And then in recent days, she has been tweeting Bible verses that simply argue for the case of biblical marriage between one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship based on her conviction that this is what the Bible teaches. She, is, she didn't rob a bank. She didn't assault anybody. All she did was say, this is what the Bible says and I believe it. And she's being threatened with two years, one count, one two-year count for each of those offenses. Now that, that is a, that is a crazy thing. That something like that could be happening in the West. We could have never imagined something like that. Simply for holding an opinion that is in line with Scripture but is not in line with what the elites of our culture thinks that we ought to think. And because of that, her very way of life is being threatened despite the fact that she has given her life in service to her family, in service to her country, 
This would be the end result simply because she holds a view of marriage that has been the standard view of marriage for thousands, thousands of years, and is still embraced by, by a vast majority of people in the world today. And if that can happen in Finland today, we can be sure that that can happen in America tomorrow. And the question is, we need to make up our mind. We need to make up our, uh, I guess that's not a question, it's a statement. We need to make our mind about what we believe. Will we stand with Christ? Will we stand upon what we believe? Or will we cave to the cultural elite who wants us to think and act in certain ways? This is exactly, you know, when we read the story about John the Baptist, sometimes we read the story as if it's some kind of, um, some kind of thing that, 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 uh, that's a fairy tale that couldn't possibly happen today. But the things that John the Baptist was dealing with in this particular situation that he found himself is the same kind of thing that we ourselves might be faced with in, who knows, the very near future. We don't know what direction our culture is going. We don't know what way laws are going. And so what Jesus was calling John the Baptist to do, and by extension what he is calling us to do, is we need to make up our minds about what we believe, what we believe about Christ, where our convictions lie, because one day we too will be tried and tested. And it might not be the way that this politician is being tested in Finland, but we can be sure that, that Satan is probing the edges of our life, pushing and prodding and, and poking us in one way or another, and we need to decide where it is we stand. We need to make up our mind. And Jesus is calling John to do that. And then number four, we need to remember that we have a trustworthy defender. We have a trustworthy defender. I love this part of the, 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 the story, verses 7 through 11. It is beautiful. I mean, in so many ways at this point, Jesus could have looked at John the Baptist as a great disappointment. I mean, think about this. He's, he's now shared his doubts with his disciples who have now gone to Jesus and now they're asking Jesus. Jesus could have been defensive about this. Jesus could have been angry about this. But, but that's, not, that's not how he reacts. Jesus actually reacts by defending John. Reminds me um, of, of a story with my dad. Isn't it nice to have people who, who stick up for you? My dad, when he was little, he used to get in lots of trouble. One of the stories that he likes to tell is of a time he was at his friend's house. And while he was at his friend's house, um, he, he did something he shouldn't have done. And I don't remember what it was. But the little boy took offense at it, and he chased my dad. And the mother of this little boy took offense at it and chased my dad. And my dad beat them back to his house, and he got in the door of the house and it wasn't long after he was in the house, he heard a rap on the door. Whap, 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 whap. And he was so terrified what was going to happen to him. Then um, my grandmother answered the door. And this mother began to share uh, the things that my dad did, his misbehaving at her home. And my grandmother took one look at this woman had said, my son would never do that. And wham, slammed the door. And he was, he was totally guilty. He was totally guilty. It's nice to have someone stick up for us. And, um, 
And in this, and in this situation, Jesus sticks up for John. Even though John was wobbly, he sticks up for him. We read in verse 7, What did you go out this, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, of course not. I mean, look what John did. Look who he stood up to. Yet now he's wavering. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. There was nothing soft about John. He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel hair garment. Uh, he had a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. There's nothing soft about John. He, he was an amazing preacher. He attracted people by the thousands, but he chose to live this ascetic way of life. Then Jesus zeroes in on who John was. Verse 9, he says, What then did you come out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. As we discussed a little bit earlier, Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a fulfillment of, of the promises of Elijah. John the Baptist then, in this sense, is greater than Elijah, who is the greatest of the prophets. In fact, Jesus says he is the greatest man who ever lived. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Has that ever confused you? When Jesus said that, and then he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? Why does Jesus say something like that? First of all, we recognize that Jesus is saying that he's greater than, as we mentioned earlier, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than all Israel's kings and prophets. Why? Because his proximity to Jesus. Because his proximity to Jesus. He is the one who, was, who, who announced the way of the Lord. John the Baptist knew Jesus better than than, than Abraham knew Jesus, better than David knew Jesus, better than the, the prophets of Israel knew Jesus, better than the kings of Israel knew Jesus. He, he knew him. He talked to him. He saw him. He experienced him. He saw more of Jesus than anyone else who had gone before him. And so in that sense, he is the greatest man who ever lived because of his proximity to Jesus. And then Jesus makes this other statement that is doubly confusing. He's the greatest man who ever lived, yet Jesus says, the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is? Well, who is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about us. Well, why is that? It's because greatness is defined by our proximity to Jesus. John didn't understand the cross yet. John didn't understand the resurrection like we do. And so what we learn from this is that we even have a greater perspective on Jesus than John ever could. You see, John was struggling because he was working with a limited understanding of who Jesus is. And so Jesus says on the one hand, he's the greatest who's ever lived, but on the other hand, he's least in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because, because those of us who have followed after, now we know Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. And, and even ourselves, Paul says, we look through a glass darkly. Even our understanding is limited. And there are going to be times when we struggle. But I want you to know that when you have a struggle, when you, when you uh, are going through a time in your life where you have doubts, know that you have a Savior who loves you. Know that you have a Savior who is your defender. 
Know that you have a Savior who carries you. Know that you have a Savior who will give you wisdom when you find yourself in those places that are uncomfortable, where people call you on the carpet. Maybe they call you on the carpet for what you believe and you feel discouraged. He says, trust me, don't worry. I'll give you the words in that moment. I'll show you what to say when you find yourself in that position. Just trust me. Or you go through times in your life where you feel as if you're wandering through a wilderness and you wonder, Lord, what are you doing with my life? He says, just trust me. I am your defender. I will carry you through. I will bring you through whatever that is you're going through. I am faithful. And just as, as, uh, as we know more now than what John knew, one day we're going to know far more than we know today. We are going to continue to see God work out his will in our lives through all eternity. And so, therefore, greatness in the kingdom is defined by the extent of our proximity to Jesus and by the degree to which we make him known. That's what John did. So, when we're faced with spiritual discouragement, what should we do? I have four suggestions. Four suggestions. Number one, go back to God's word. Go back to God's word. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus went back and pointed John to the promises of Isaiah 35. These promises that could only be fulfilled in the Messiah. And he says, just as I have done these things, know that I will complete what I have said. I will do what I have said. One of the most dangerous places for Christians is when we go into those periods of time where we stop reading our Bibles. The, the scriptures are like a sword. They pierce our hearts. They drive us back to the Lord. It's so critical that we go back to the scriptures. And when we do, God changes our perspective. Number two, remember that God never promised that life is easy. God never promised that life is easy. Jesus didn't say to John, I'm, don't worry, John, I'm going to get you out of jail in no time. Jesus knew what the end of John's earthly life would be, but he also knew that there was a great reward for John. And so sometimes God leaves us in those difficult situations because through them he's going to accomplish something bigger than we could ever imagine or think. You see, it was God's plan that that elect from, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue should come in. John the Baptist had no idea that one day we would be here. You see, God, God is delaying his coming. Why? Because, because more and more people are coming into the kingdom. And so as a result of it, we need to remember that sometimes we need to endure difficult things, but that God has a purpose in all of it, a greater purpose than anything we could ever imagine or conceive. Third thing is this, think back to the past. Sometimes when I find myself struggling uh, and I struggle with doubt or some other thing in my own life, one of the things that I do, I like to go back and I like to think about the ways that God has delivered me personally in the past. And if you're a believer, if you've walked with Christ, you have stories, you have experiences like that, you know how God worked, how we intervened. And it's an important thing sometimes when God works in miraculous ways in our lives to write those things down. So when we find ourselves in struggle, we can go back and we can say, but I remember God was faithful then. God carried me through that time. Oh, I remember when I lost this person I loved and, and God lifted me up on wings like eagles. Whatever it might be. We go back and we look at the past and we see how God carried us through the past and trust that he will carry us in the future. And finally, number four, we need to trust that Christ will never let us go. We need to trust that Christ will never 
let us go. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 gives us a wonderful promise. This is about us when we enter into a relationship with Christ. And we enter into a relationship with Christ by faith. We are sinful people. We are lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sin has separated us from God. And because of that, we were destined for eternity. Separation from him in a place called hell. But God, by his grace, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us so that through faith in him, we can be delivered from hell and given eternal life. That is, that is a gift. That is the gospel. That's what God offers us. And when we enter into a relationship with Christ, God does something miraculous. I remember when my grandfather, on my mother's side, became a follower of Jesus. He was in his 80s. I had a chance to share the gospel with him. He repented of his sin. He trusted in Jesus as his Savior. And his first question to me was, what if I sin now? What happens to me? That was already on his mind. I want to show you something about God's faithfulness from, from these verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the moment that you enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. Think about that. You have the Holy Spirit actively at work in your life. And this is what it says about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word there, guarantee, that, that word is the word, Greek word, erebone, which in the ancient world was used just as we hear guarantee. It was, it was uh, like a down payment. So, for instance, when somebody would go buy a piece of property, they would put a down payment or we put a down payment, and then that down payment is kind of a promissory note that we're going to repay the rest of it. Well, so that's what he's calling the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. Uh, also, in modern Greek, the word erebone is the word that means engagement ring. So um, if, you, if you were to give someone in Greece today a ring, you're promising to marry a certain person, you give them a arabone, and I know that I'm not pronouncing it right in modern Greek, but it's the same word. You give them an arabone, and that's a promise. When you give that engagement ring, it says that I will marry you. I'm giving you this ring. It's a promise that we will get married. The Holy Spirit is not like a person who puts a down payment on a house and then can't pay the rest of it. The Holy Spirit has all the means at his disposal to make good on what's promised. The Holy Spirit is not like a, like a, a young man who um, puts a ring on a lady's finger and doesn't really mean it. No, God keeps his promises. What is he saying? What he's saying is, is that when we enter into a relationship with Christ, though we be often unfaithful, though we often doubt, though we often struggle like John the Baptist, what he is saying is, is that God himself will keep us. If it depended upon us, we would never remain there. But because it depends upon God and his promises, he will keep us. And we need to remember that particularly when we go through life's trials, when we go through hardships, when we feel like we're going to break. We need to hold on to him. 
But as we hold on to him, we need to remember that he's holding more tightly to us. You see, God is a God who will never, he will never let us go. And we saw this in John's life, though he doubted, though he struggled, rather than turning his back on the Lord, John hung in there. John lost his life, but he gained this great eternal reward from his great Savior in heaven. And my question for you is, is whether or not you know him. Whether you've come to a place in your 